Hello, and welcome to the Summit Church Podcast. Our messages are designed to help teach and equip you on your journey to lead people to follow Christ. We hope that this message will inspire and encourage you, no matter where you are on your journey towards Christ. If you have questions, want to talk, or want to learn more about Summit, visit us at summitniles.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, you know what? It is, uh, it's good to sing with you. It's good to worship. You know, songs are important, right? Our, our worship uh, is important. Just had a moment over here when we sang that song, um, 10,000 Reasons. That, I mean, it's a modern worship song, but it's been around for a little bit now. And I was remembering uh, 10 years ago um, when I was first arrived here as a very green youth pastor, um, I took a group of students on a mission trip to Indianapolis, the great faraway exotic land. And um, we ended up, our, our group kind of ended up helping to lead worship in during one of the little sessions with all the groups that were, <laughs> were together. And uh, we just, it was makeshift. We were kind of in a school. We didn't have a lot of stuff. And I just remember Jared, he's like, he's a drummer, right? And so like he had a chair. That's what he was drumming with was a chair. And so we sang that song and we led worship and uh, he was banging on a chair for the drums. And I just, that was what came to my mind. Uh, but still now, 10 years later, we're still singing a song about 10,000 reasons that we can be thankful to the Lord. So Jared, thanks for sticking with me for 10 years. Uh, that's good. Um, my name my name's Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm grateful to be with you uh, today here at Summit Church to open the Word with you. Um, whether you're here in person or you're watching online later today, it, it really is good to be with you. Uh, happy Thanksgiving! Okay, you're kind of awake. Happy Thanksgiving. I hope uh, indeed it was a happy Thanksgiving uh, for you. A uh, quick show of hands out of curiosity. How many of you at some point during this weekend with uh, family or, or with whoever, um, were you asked the question, or at least a variant of the question, what are you thankful for? Did anybody get asked that question? Only a few of you? Oh, come on. You were asked that question. How many of you were like purposefully, like, that is your question, you go to that, you're like, what are you thankful for? All the moms, that's the thing. Okay. What are you thankful for? Um, it's, a, it's the same old question. It's trotted out every year at Thanksgiving. Um, what blessings are in your life? What are you knowing, experiencing? What are you seeing that you would qualify as good that you ought to be thankful uh, for? What are you thankful for? Fill out a card, put it in the cute mason jar, write it on the paper turkey that's uh, displayed on the fridge. Um, that, now that question, what are you thankful for? Uh, I, it's an age-old question. It can seem cliche. Always, again, comes out at Thanksgiving. And because of that, I'll be honest, my personal attitude, I can often dismiss that question. Um, it's like, ah, here's the list of the things, right? Um, but as I was thinking about that this year, if I take into account that our faith is often solidified and understood through important questions and answers, I I can maybe understand that there's something to these flies. I'm telling you what, they're everywhere. We're getting, we're, we're taking care of it. Cold weather, please come. When, when we understand that our faith is often solidified and understood through important questions and answers, there's something then to that question. And then what it can do to direct then my soul. Really? Uh, that, we talked about songs. That is the power and, and the beauty of what we would call liturgy, right? Something, rehearsing something that forces us to revisit truths that we already know, that continually cement them within us. It's the reason that we sing songs. 
uh, sometimes that are hundreds of years old because we're remembering and rehearsing God's faithfulness. And then, then that moves us to respond to him. So although that can be a painfully simple question, what are you thankful for? Really, it can be a thing that, that reorients us back to what is most important, especially when it comes to our faith, our, our active trust in God. And so this morning, as, as we start, before we, before we jump into James, because we're going to continue that today, I want to take just a moment um, to, to remember and for us to see and be reminded at an absolute foundational level what it is that as believers should center our thankfulness. That's where I want to start today. So before we get to James, will you turn briefly with me to Colossians chapter 1? Colossians chapter 1. So we've come kind of briefly, not briefly, we've come fully into uh, what we would now maybe consider the holiday season. The snow is here. People are listening to Christmas music. So how do we, how do we, how do we remind ourselves what it is we ought to be thankful for? What centers all of that? So in Colossians chapter 1, um, Paul is writing to the believers in Colossae, and while he needs to address some teachings that are growing uh, in popularity that were contrary to the gospel, and they were confusing the people, so that's what he's writing this letter for, but he starts this letter by affirming what is true, not by talking about what isn't and kind of correcting some of those things, but he talks about what is true, and then he prays that their faith would continue based on the foundation of that truth that he reminds them of. And that's the beginning of this letter, okay? So I want to pick it up in verse 9 um, and then read through verses for, through verse 14. I would start later than verse 9, but it's Paul. So it's basically one long run-on sentence. And so we have to kind of start all the way back at verse 9, okay? I'm going to start with we continually. So here we go, verse 9, Colossians 1. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and, our key pieces here, giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I was drawn to that uh, this week as I was considering thankfulness. And so what Paul does here, Paul ends his prayer with an appeal for them and for us to, to give joyful thanks to the Father. And what I love is that he clearly outlines for us why we should be joyfully thankful towards the Father. He, what he's doing is he is centering our, faithfulness, or our, our thankfulness. So in other words, Paul, or, uh, Paul gives us freely the answer to the question, what are you thankful for? So look at, look at verses 12 and 13. There are three things I, I want to pull out there that we should be thankful for. Do you see them? And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has, here are the three things. One, qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people. Rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And brought us into the kingdom of the Son. And he accomplished those things essentially 
through, through the Son, in whom we have redemption, it says in verse 14. The forgiveness of sins, by the way. Those things have qualified us, rescued us, and brought us. So what are you thankful for? Paul says, give joyful thanks to the Father who has done these things. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he says, you have been qualified, you have been rescued, and you have been brought. Okay, the New King James says conveyed there for that word of brought. Instead of brought, it says conveyed. Or ESV says transferred. Okay, you have been brought. The idea there is that you have been picked up from where you first were and you have been brought to a different place and put in a different place. You have been, so I like to use the word delivered there, okay? You have been qualified, rescued, and you have been delivered. Those are the three things Paul mentions. And they, this is the basis for our faith. And ultimately, what should just spill the thankfulness right out of us. Again, as you consider these things, all of these things have been done for you. That's a key thread through these three things. I want to talk about them briefly here. Again, as we, as, before we get to James, this will help set us up, I think. But talking about these three things that should center our thankfulness. thankfulness. We have been qualified, number one. We have been qualified. You've seen those ads, right? Apply now and see if you qualify. Apply now. What is the idea behind qualification? It's always the same. We're going to come on in. We're going to check you out. We're going to see if you're competent. Let's see if you measure up to the standard so then you can receive that which you are needing to receive. Apply now and see if you qualify. Measure up to the standard. In this universe that God has created, He is the standard because He is holy and He is perfect and He is just and He is merciful. He is the standard. You and I both know that we don't measure up to that standard. Rather, our experience lines up with the Word of God in Romans 3 when it says there is no one good, not even one. So the bad news is that I don't qualify to be with God. And you don't qualify to be with God. But verse 12 says, we have been qualified to be with God. I don't qualify and you don't qualify, but it says we have been qualified. God has qualified us to be with God. God has qualified us to be with God. It has been done for you. You were unfit, but now you have been made fit, it says. Those who have been called and believe have been made sufficient. That's what it means. To, we've been made sufficient. We've been made competent to partake in what it says is the great inheritance of God's holy people. It doesn't mean that, that inherently we don't have value because we do because we were made in the image of God, but sin has marred that image. And so we are broken. We inherently have value as being made in God's image. But because of our sin, we are broken and we are in, in bondage to sin and, and death. And that keeps us away from God because he is holy and perfect. And so we don't qualify then to be with God, although we have inherent value by being made in him. And so without God's divine qualification in our life, we are unfit to be with him and participate in the treasures of the kingdom. But now that we have been qualified by God, we can partake in that great inheritance, it says. Well, what is that great inheritance that you've been qualified for? Eternity in heaven. That's no small deal. Spiritual brothers and sisters, the people sitting in this room and around the world. How about redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins? Not just the full and future glory of our salvation in heaven, but, but new and abundant life now. 
today in our home and in our lives and our families because we've inherited the Spirit of Christ. That inheritance includes ministry as well. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.6. He has made us competent, same idea. He's made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He has made us competent. We've inherited and been qualified to participate in a purpose, in a mission with the rest of God's holy people. That's what we've been qualified for. This simple yet powerful idea here is that essentially we had no business being involved in any of those things that I just listed. We had no business in being involved in any of those things. That inheritance had no place in our lives, but God has qualified us, making us fit to partake in those heavenly things. Praise God that we have been qualified. We have been qualified. That's the first one. Number two, I'm getting animated because this is such good news. Okay, number two, we have been rescued. So we've, first we've been qualified. God qualifies us. He's done it. And now he's going to rescue us. We've been rescued. Who doesn't love a good rescue story, right? All is lost, but the cavalry shows up, breaks down the walls, beats the enemy back, and claims what is rightfully theirs. We have been rescued. Again, think about the definition of rescue with me for just a minute. The very condition of a rescue means someone has zero capacity to remove themselves from their damning circumstances. It it absolutely requires the aid of another. That's what rescue means. You cannot rescue yourself. It is outside of the definition of rescue, which, why, which means rescue is such good news then. What are we rescued from, right? So someone, someone saw you. I don't want to skip this part. Someone saw you. They knew your need, and they took it upon themselves to suit up and rescue you. God rescued you. What were we rescued from then? Verse 13 tells us, it says, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. The dominion of darkness, where our chains of sin and, and the resulting spiritual death because of that cripple us and render us incapable of breaking free. It's the sphere in which evil reigns and Satan's limited power is exercised. It, this is a damning and a broken place to be. And we are all born into that place because of our very nature of not living up to the standard, being in rebellion against God, choosing ourselves over him. That is the reality of sin. That is the dominion of darkness. We all were there, but praise be to God that he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. We have been rescued by Christ, brought, this is good, brought from a rebel kingdom and placed under the sovereignty of our rightful king. Rescued. I want you to notice that the text says that we were brought, not bought from the dominion of darkness. Okay? We were bought with blood, all right. But God did not pay off Satan through Jesus' death like some hostage negotiation. Okay? You need to know that. No, Jesus paid the penalty of sin by dying on a cross to satisfy the holy wrath of God. And then, in his resurrection, with power and authority, he usurped the power of the enemy and set us free from the bondage which Satan had over us. We were not bought from Satan. We were brought, we were rescued from the enemy. And now, it says, we have been brought into the kingdom of the Son. 
So those first two things, we've been qualified and we have been rescued. And now I'm going to use the word delivered here. We've been brought. We have been delivered. Okay? Rather, this simple idea of being delivered is to be brought into, it's transferred, to be placed within or, or carried to a certain place. Think Amazon two-day delivery. The package was here, now it's here. Okay? Very simple. But the, 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 the image that we can, we can understand from this uh, really is, if you think back to ancient times, when a, when a conquering nation or a king would conquer a, another nation or a people group, what they would do after they have conquered is that they would pick up that population, those people, and they would completely remove them from where they were, and they would plop them down, lock, stock, and barrel, the whole population, into the new kingdom, into their own kingdom. That's the picture that we're looking at here. And so now, all of the overarching themes, identities, philosophies, ways of life, we're now covering and redefining the new population. Does that make sense? They were picked up and brought to a new place. And now that way of life was now defining who they were. That place then for Christians that we have been delivered is the kingdom of his son. That is where we have been brought into. And now the overarching theme of that kingdom, grace, the identity that we have in Christ, and a new way of living are now over us redefining our entire existence. That's the picture here. We've been qualified, we've been rescued, and now we've been delivered into this place. In other words, being delivered and underneath this, this thing, the, the truth of the gospel is now a proclamation over your life. It dictates who you are, and then as a result, what fruit is then produced in your life. Okay, so the gospel is not a philosophy to be followed or something that only comes at the end of your life. It is not good advice. It is good news that is spoken over you. Okay, oftentimes, so I grew up reading uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, the very beginning, you know, that list, what we call the Beatitudes. Um, blessed are those who, for they will. You know, blessed are those who mourn, for they will in, uh, be comforted, right? That list that we see there, I, I often saw and even heard taught really as equations, almost, as algorithms. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit. So like, go be meek, and you're going to inherit the earth. Go mourn, and then you will be comforted. I, I saw them as equations. They're not equations. They're not algorithms to break into God's blessing surplus. They are statements that Jesus gives, that he's proclaiming over those who would find themselves in a place of needing him. Okay, because you have been delivered now into the kingdom of the Son, the Beatitudes, and you should go back and read it, those are proclamations over your life. Jesus is, is saying, go and do these things, and then, and then you'll be blessed. He's saying, blessed are those who have been delivered into my kingdom, because when they experience these, these things, this weakness and longing, they can now experience the true blessing of intimacy with God, because I am there. They're in my kingdom now. It is proclaiming truth over it. That is what we have been delivered into, a covering of grace in our weakness, becoming aware that, that in our, dependent, our dependence on him as our reigning king is the safest place that we can be. That's what we've been, been delivered into and underneath. God be praised that when I am broken, he delivers me to a place where I am filled with the blessing of his presence. And that my friends, is the gift of the gospel right there. That's what it is, okay? So what ought we to be thankful for? Those three things. 
We have been qualified. We have been rescued. And we have been delivered. Notice all of that is under the, that umbrella of redemption. That because of what Christ has done on the cross, the forgiveness of sins that he offers, uh, offers to us, we've been qualified, rescued, and delivered. So, there's, all, there's that. Okay? That, uh, how does that help us today? Um, I, James talks about faith a lot. This is what our faith is built on. These three things. Okay? This is what our faith is built on and, and knowing and trusting that all of this has been done for us. It doesn't say you qualified yourself, you rescued yourself. You, we have been these things. Knowing and trusting that all that has been done for us, we now have a part to play that just comes out of us. We receive it, we believe it, and now we're changed by it. That is where we're going today in our passage. And so I um, invite you to start turning to James chapter 2, right? So the gift of salvation, you know this, it's open to all of us, open to all who believe. But a true belief is one in which we, we acknowledge that these things have been done and we, we, we turn away from the things that were before. Um, you heard Abby's testimony this morning. It's what's pictured in baptism. I turn away from the brokenness that was before. I'm going to walk in the new life that I know God has granted to me, has qualified me to have, okay? These things have happened, and now I'm radically different. How can I not be? So James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, we're going to look at what that, the authenticity of what, what that looks like in our lives now, okay? Something Dan mentioned last week um, that I thought was very helpful and I appreciated. He said, I'm going to try not to mess up what should be a, a straightforward message, <laughs> Um, James is very helpful in that way and also kind of hard for, for preachers. Uh, he kind of does the preaching for you, right? So when, when Paul, when we're reading through some things that Paul wrote, he often drops some theology, some God knowledge, and we got to kind of flesh it out and like work it into our walk. Not James, man. He drops the truth. He gives us like 12 examples that are relatively simple to understand, and it's almost always convicting, right? Uh, so today is no different. Uh, James chapter 2, uh, and then when he uses the word faith here, I want you to think of that as trust. Trusting that, that the things we talked about have been done, okay? Trusting in those things, that they've been done for you. Here we go, verse 14 of James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that. And shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, he gives another example, was not even 
Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So, let's, let's do an overview of this passage. This passage seems to be broken in three different sections, okay? Verses 14 through 17, verses 18 through 19, and then 20 through the end. Three different sections, okay? Now, it's James writing, obviously, but what he's doing is he's picturing for us through two different someones, uh, two different arguments revolving around faith and what the emphasis should be. So essentially the question being, what, what gets us into the rightness with God? How ought we to exist as Christians? And one takes a stance that we see in verses 14 that, that emphasizes belief, putting, putting the emphasis on belief. And then the other in verses 18 and 19 emphasize works. And James then answers both sides saying, you're both wrong efficiently proving out the divinely beautiful handshake between the two, okay? So let's look at that first part, verses 14 through 17. We'll break this down a bit. What good is it, he asks, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims or says, that's a good rendering in the ESV, says, if someone says that they have faith but have no deeds, can such faith save them? Now he's asking this facetiously. No, obviously not then gives a plain illustration, right? Suppose a brother or sister, this is meaning a fellow believer, he's writing this to believers, is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? And notice the same wording there that he started with, what good is it? He's making a point here that in this outrageous illustration, he's saying this wouldn't even happen because he's writing to believers. Suppose a fellow believer, meaning you are a believer and someone else is a believer and they have these needs and that you just kind of say, oh, good, good luck finding those things. I have, I could take care of that, but I won't. That doesn't, that won't, it doesn't even make sense. What good is it? He's giving an illustration that, that doesn't play out. What good is it? He's saying, because that doesn't even make sense, it would never even happen. In the same way, faith or claimed faith, from what we read earlier, by itself is not, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It's not faith at all. Okay, so what we should be clear about here is that James isn't talking about authentic faith that is struggling or simply needs resurgence. What he's talking about is a false faith. That, 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 that is someone who says they believe, they've been saved, I've been changed, and James boldly says, no dice, because there's been no change. So that illustration is foolish, because that wouldn't even happen. If there's a fellow believer, you would take care of them. In the same way, this is someone who, walk, who talks the talk, but does not walk the walk. And the illustration he gives, again, is a rather biting one. I mean, you couldn't even imagine that. Someone in your fold that you're connected with, that you have relationship with, is struggling with essential resources, clothing and food, and you're aware of that need. And instead of, you know, not even just avoiding the situation, but, but actually making it worse by going to them and saying, hey, I see that you don't have clothes or food to feed your family. 
be warm in those clothes that you don't have and be well fed with the clothes or with the food that you don't have. Good health to you. James says, nope, send it back. What good is that? He's refuting the emptiness of what, what, I will, what I will call maybe attachment theory. I know that's not real attachment theory, but I'm going to call that attachment theory. I'm a Christian. By na- I believe in God. I'm going to attach myself to the idea of God because I like what he stands for, mostly. But the whole counsel of God's word never pans out in their life. What good is it, James asks? It's not good. It's not real. It's not real. Okay? Supposed faith that doesn't produce works is not genuine or actual faith. There has been no transformation. Despite claims of life, a corpse is still a corpse if there are no signs of vitality. Genuine faith is belief evidenced by works. Okay? That's the first part. Verses 18 and 19. Okay? This next part, understandably, can be a bit confusing with the wording. And there's some different interpretations here on when this next someone finishes their speaking before kind of James picks up the mantle again. Um, You know, the quotation marks in Greek, you know, it's not quite the same. And so, Uh, We don't know exactly when this next person finishes speaking, but it doesn't change the point of the passage, okay? So we don't need to worry about that. I only mention it because I'm going to attribute all of verses 18 and 19 to the second person that James is picturing for us. This this, is a common interpretation of what this person is, is jumping in with, okay? So I want to read those two verses as someone who stands up thinking that they're in agreement with James as they also refute the person whose claimed faith is empty. Okay, so that's the filter with which I want you to read this. Verse 18. But someone will say, second person here, you have faith, claimed empty faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Okay, so those are the verses. Again, at face value, it could seem... And it could possibly even be that James is continuing his argument here after the, that first quotation. But if it was him, James probably would have worded that slightly differently. He most likely would have said, show me your deeds without faith, not the other way around, which is actually how it's, how it's written, okay? Regardless, what we can take from this is that someone else pipes into this debate, ganging up on the person that James calls out, And this new challenger puts a mistaken emphasis now on works. Okay? You know, James possibly could be picturing maybe a Gentile, someone outside of the Jewish tradition and and a solid just belief in God. And this imaginary person says, keep your empty belief. That's all you rest on is belief. Even the demons believe and shudder. According to you guys, they shudder at the idea of God. Look at the works. Look at how I'm living my life. Look at the good I'm doing. I'm a good person. That righteousness should be plain and good enough. My works produce my faith. And so here we have the other side of that faith coin, right? Basing our standing on our our relationship with God simply on the good things that we do. That's the picture. And then James, so he, James doubles down then in verses 20 through 26, refuting the work's focus. And again, using examples, he builds his case that belief and works go hand in hand within authentic faith. Okay? So we've had those two pictures. Now James brings it all together. 
verses 20 through 26. Let's read that. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Not produced, but complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Verse 24, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Another example he gives in verse 25, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Listen, James says to his not-so-imaginary people, you're both wrong. Faith is working belief. It is trusting in God, evidenced in action. Flimsy faith is dead, so are empty, faithless works. Flimsy faith is dead, so are empty, faithless works. I'm going to say some things and then explain it. Don't throw anything at me. You can't simply believe your way into righteousness. And you can't work your way into righteousness. You can't simply believe your way into righteousness and you can't work your way into righteousness. You must have faith, true faith. Let me explain that. Don't misunderstand me when I say that you can't simply believe your way into righteousness. Okay, so when Jesus was asked in John 6, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered with this. He says the work of God is this, to believe. That's the work, simply to believe, right, in the one that he has sent. However, our idea of belief is often short-sighted. The biblical idea of belief includes repentance. Always. It means being so gripped by such truth that it has produced a turning and a doing of something different. That is what belief, biblically speaking, means. Okay, so you can't just simply attach yourself to the idea of God and be saved. You cannot simply believe your way into righteousness, nor can you do enough good things to work yourself into righteousness. True faith is working belief, trusting in God, so gripped by who he is that it produces fruit in you. Look at the examples that James gives. Rahab first, even though she was second on the list. Despite being a Canaanite prostitute from Jericho, she feared the God of the Israelites, which produced the work of hiding the Jewish spies, which had made their way into the city. And so Rahab, out of her belief, it came, came action. She put herself at risk, and God rewarded her because of her faith, and he saved her. Now, Abraham, the second piece here. Abraham, old Abe, to whom he gave the promise of salvation. The promise of Jesus all the way back in ancient times. Through your seed, through your family, Abraham, I will bless all nations and open the way to myself. That's going to come through your family. And Abraham, it says, believed God. He believed him. And it was credited to him as righteousness. 
So James, this is critical. James uses that verse from Genesis to prove his point that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him him as righteousness. He uses that that verse to prove his point. And what is fascinating to me and I think critical to the point James is trying to make is that the action of Abraham that demonstrated the authenticity of his belief didn't happen until 40 years after it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. 40 years after he believed God, he walked Isaac up the mountain with the intention of ending his son's life because he actually trusted and believed that God would fulfill his promise. That the Savior would come through his line Why was Abraham's belief credited to him as righteousness? Because it was authentic and it proved out in his obedience to God's direction, even 40 years later. What's the bottom line for us today? Well, I think it's the actual bottom line of this passage. James makes the conclusion quite clear in verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So let me say that in the, in, a, in the positive. As a body that has breath breathes, so a person changed by God produces fruit. That is what we are talking about. It is authentic faith that James is speaking about in this passage. As a body that has breath breathes, So it is with a person who has been changed by God. They produce fruit. It flows from them. In this passage, James is is not primarily concerned with simply compelling you to go out and do good things. That, That is a byproduct of what is happening, and it is the point of the illustration about the mirror two weeks ago. But what he's doing in this passage is defining for us what authentic faith looks like. The guy that says he believes but has no works. And then there's this guy who who tries to skate through on only good works, living a good life, thinking that that's good enough. Real faith, James says, is is going to display both. One as one is perfected and realized within the other. I'm going to invite the team to the platform to help us close out our, our service today. Um... I told you this is going to be to the point. Trying not to mess this up. James is pretty straightforward. Authentic faith is what we're talking about here. So the question then, inevitably, that some of you may ask. Well, is my faith legit? (laughs) If James is describing authentic faith, like, do I count? Have I made it? How do I know that my faith is proven? Can I encourage you this morning, based on what we started with, If you have actually been qualified, if you have been rescued, if you have been delivered, there is no doubt that your life and your soul look different than they did before. It doesn't mean that you have attained perfection or that you can do all the things the right way all the time. That is not what that means. But what it produces in us, being qualified by God, since he's done it, we haven't done it. He qualifies us, rescues us, and delivers us. If that has happened, 
do you have a, do you desire to know God? Do you find yourself in a place where you desire to know about him, to know his love for you? Do you desire to do the things he calls you to do? Do you desire to know more about his character and the purpose that he has for his life to experience intimacy with God? Are any of those desires there? If those are there, however imperfectly being worked out in your life, that's authentic faith. And God covers the rest. He covers the rest. Those are the things that move us forward. There's that desire in your life. My guess is for most of you it is. And if it isn't, God has grace for you. He's, he's offering redemption, the forgiveness of sins by what Christ has done on the cross. And he, out of that, compels you forward. And then who you are, how you go out and you live, inviting people to church, sharing the good news of what has happened to you, that will come as a result of the change that God has done in your heart. That's what James is talking about. It's such good news. It's such good news. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for today. Thank you for an opportunity to, to, to discover your word and to, to be moved uh, forward doing the things you've called us to do because we've been changed picturing Christ to those around us because how could we not? We've been qualified. We've been rescued. We've been delivered. So Lord, help us then as, as we walk the walk and not just talk the talk, knowing that you've already accomplished all that is needed to be accomplished. We ask by the power of your spirit to fill us, to change us, to produce spiritual fruit in our lives so that we would come to know you in an intimate way and so that the world would come to know you as we have come to know you, tasting that forgiveness, that redemption. Lord, all of this we pray in Jesus' name, picturing him to the world. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message from the Summit Church Podcast. Again, if you have questions, visit us at summitniles.com. Now go and be the church in the